runasradio.com. You're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 101 with guest Alan Sugano, recorded Thursday, March 12, 2009. Run As Radio is produced each week by Quap Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow the boys on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you very much. This is Richard Campbell. You're listening to Run As Radio, and with me as always, my co-host, Greg Hughes. Hey, how's it going? That's uh, good. Hey, congratulations on 100 shows once again, and uh, that show came out really well. Yeah, well, and uh, you know, if I'm being really honest, it came out better than I thought it would. Uh, but it was a lot of fun, wasn't it? I uh, I had the opportunity to go back and listen to it yesterday because I was getting these emails and tweets and different instant messages and stuff saying, hey, that was pretty cool. So I figured I should go and find out, uh, aside from saying uh, a whole bunch of times, that actually I sounded fairly coherent, more more so than I thought I did. <laughs> uh, you're a more interesting person than you realize, Mr. Hughes. And I'm much more interesting now that I've done that, I suppose. So, okay, there you go. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. So thanks for the thanks for the chance to do that. I had a good time good time talking with you absolutely and, and now we're ready for the next hundred yeah that's uh it'll only take us two more years <laughs> yeah well it's the pace we're going that's right so let's get started all right greg let's introduce our guest alan sagano is the president of ads consulting group Founded in 1991, ADS specializes in networking, server virtualization, workstation virtualization, application virtualization, security, exchange, custom programming, web development, SharePoint, and SQL Server development. Is that really specializing? That sounds like <laughs> Not that. Really? That sounds like a Jack full of all gambit. Trades, master of none. <laughs> there you go. You do the whole thing. And a, a regular speaker at various conferences, including Win Connections. Hey, we're going to Dev Connections. Oh, you are. Well, maybe I'll see you guys there. Absolutely. Or, or wait. Are you? I'm pretty sure Dev Connections runs the same time as Win Connections. I'm not sure. Are they, are they might be a week apart, actually. Maybe that's how we keep yeah. missing each other. I, yeah, I think you're actually right. Mm-hmm. Are you there uh, next week or the week after? Yeah. Okay. Then they're one week apart. I can't remember the one show, the spring show. They're apart, and then uh, the fall show. They're together. Right. Because the venues are bigger, and also an MVP in the connect uh, in connected systems. Yes. Yes. Well, I actually I didn't get renewed. For 2009, the magazine actually had me write an article on 10 reasons not to upgrade to Vista, and I think it might have upset some people at Microsoft. So, uh oh, <laughs> yeah, that might do it. <laughs> I got XNAID on the MVPA. Uh, that's too bad. <laughs> but uh, that's a, you know, I got to call it like I see it. Yeah, not like uh, you know, we have a lot of clients. I, I'd say some of them are on Vista, but most of them are waiting for Windows 7, which actually looks very encouraging, which is a good thing. It, it is interesting to see, and, and we know perfectly well that, that Windows 7 is still the Vista at the core, but it, it feels like they've just refocused themselves on on things that I think matter a lot to the customer. Like, I, I, for the first time ever, I feel with Vista, and maybe you have that same experience, it's doing stuff I don't know about. Like, it's busy. I, I, I hate to have this feeling that my computer is busy, and I don't know why. Yes, yes. I, you look at the hard drive and it's flashing like crazy. You're like, what the heck is this thing doing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I know I'm I'm running Windows 7 on the recording machine here uh, on the beta, and uh, I've really enjoyed it so far. Uh, I think they've made so you know I go on my security little uh, rants, but from a security standpoint, they've they've strengthened it quite a bit, uh, which is encouraging to see. 
Yes, I think with Vista, they might have gone a little bit over too far one way to the point where it's a little, well, at least it's very annoying. But uh, I think with Windows 7, they really kind of addressed a lot of those issues, and the performance seems to be a little bit better. And the uh, the upgrade uh, path is not quite as steep now that, uh, you know, everybody's had a chance to maybe upgrade to some later software. But, you know, when Vista first came out, you, you had to upgrade almost everything to get, get right. it to run properly with Vista. Well, and it does seem like uh, it's just configuration changes now to get things right, and the, and the drivers are settling down, so Win 7 is going to have the benefits of the pain we felt in Vista. Yes, yes. I think they, they really, Microsoft took a really good look at the uh, issues that people were uh, bringing up with Vista, and they looks like they really addressed, not all of them, but, but uh, a good majority of them, so it's good. It's good Absolutely. Thing. But we were going to talk about storage technologies. Apparently, you spend a fair bit of your time battling with this. Um, yeah, in the context of everything else that we do. So, uh, it, you know, storage is something that you always have to be aware of. And we try to keep on top of things and uh, just uh, be aware of what's coming out in the, in the industry uh, to make sure that we're positioning our clients in the right place they need to be. Well, and I think there's more choices now than ever for, for storage options. Uh, that's 100% correct, uh, especially with this latest generation of hard drives with the SATA drives and SAS drives. And there's this new thing, the, the hot new thing in the storage industry for SANS is this thing called uh, Fiber Channel over Ethernet. It's got everybody pretty excited, including myself, uh, primarily because the price points might be more attractive than the traditional fiber channel SANS. Well, when I think fiber channel over Ethernet, I immediately think iSCSI. Isn't it the same thing? Um, no. Actually, it's a little bit different. With iSCSI, basically what you're doing is you're, you're, you're taking, um, typically you're taking SCSI calls and then there's an overhead process that basically converts the SCSI request to uh, Ethernet requests. And that's typically done on a, on a, TCP offloader engine or tow card, which is typically resides on the on the Ethernet card itself. So you do have some overhead there, and it's a little bit different uh, in that uh, once it's on Ethernet, that's why you can have a you can technically use iSCSI for like a geographically distributed uh, SAN or uh, infrastructure like that. Whereas fiber channel over Ethernet uh, is a little bit different. Uh, it typically would use 10 gig. Uh, Ethernet to do the transmission, but it uses 10 gig native 10 gig Ethernet as a physical transport layer to deliver the fiber channel load. So there's not really a conversion process because uh, it's basically using Ethernet natively, I'll say. Uh, so you don't have the overhead of converting uh, a SCSI request to Ethernet. And so then you're also not trying to bang it through switches and things like that. Like this, I find most people set up iSCSI that way anyway, that there's literally just a cable running from the server into the iSCSI chassis. Is that the preferred sort of wiring for fiber channel over Ethernet as well? Um, well, fiber channel over Ethernet is a little bit different. It's not routable um, over um, it's not routable over a TCP/IP network right. because it doesn't have the TCP/IP portion. It's just Ethernet as the physical transport. The biggest advantage of it basically is the price point. Um, you know, there, as you know, there's uh, several different flavors of fiber channel running from, you know, 2 gig, 4 gig, and 8 gig. And the 10 gig stuff, the advantage of the 10 gig stuff that's just coming out now is uh, the price point. Everybody's hoping that it's going to be a lot cheaper and it'll be faster than fiber channel. Uh, traditionally, and it depends on the vendor, but a lot of times uh, fiber channel is still... Um, 
I won't say insanely expensive. How about just mildly expensive? Mildly insanely expensive. Uh, usually, a lot of times on fiber channel switches, you need there's an upcharge every time you bring up a port. You might have a an eight port switch, but every time you make the port on the switch active, they charge you for it, and and it's you know a couple of grand pop there plus the redundant cards, blah blah blah. So. Uh, what everybody's hoping with uh, the using 10 gig, uh, the 10 gig Ethernet stuff is that there won't be a charge for that, hopefully, and uh, for the per turnup port charge, and it will, uh, it the the actual equipment itself is going to be a little bit more reasonable and give better performance than the traditional uh, fiber channel uh, SAN stuff. Although today in in 2009, 10 gigabit Ethernet NICs are still pretty darn pricey. They are, um, but it's all relative. You know, fiber channel, by the time you get the fiber channel card, it's very close to the, it's probably, depends on what vendor you go with, but, you know, they're right around the same price point, but then you have the, the connectors and you have to do a redundant connection. And I think uh, the the ace that's up the sleeve for fiber channel over Ethernet is that as it becomes more widely adopted, as, you know, a lot of people are now deploying gig to the desktop, so uh, the next logical thing is 10 gig for the backbone is the prices are going to drop like a rock. I mean, when you looked at the first gig switches that first came out, you know, what were they, like a million dollars per switch or something like yeah. that? And now you can get them for, you know, a couple hundred bucks. Um, you know, maybe not that cheap, but the price points have come down to the price where they're very close to what 100, uh, 100 megabit per second Ethernet used to be even just a few years ago. So that's what I'm hoping will happen with the uh, the 10 gig stuff. And I was screaming even when iSCSI came out. I go, why doesn't anybody have iSCSI over 10 gig yet? Because it's 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 almost a no-brainer. Well, that, and that seems to be on the radar as well that there will be 10 gig iSCSI. Yes, and again, depending on what you, if you look at it from a you know a 10,000 foot level view, theoretically, uh, and again, it depends on the hardware you're running and the configuration. Uh, uh, 10 gig over iSCSI will probably be. Theoretically, a little bit slower than uh, fiber channel over Ethernet just because of the overhead of transporting the SCSI request to Ethernet requests. Right. Uh, the advantage of iSCSI that it has is that the packets are routable. So Yeah. So the, the idea that I can use switches to, to share out this stuff, just a, a lot of infrastructure is available to me as soon as I go TCP IP. Exactly. Exactly. But and, and the normal configuration for fiber channel of Ethernet, you're essentially talking about a cable running from the server to the SAN or whatever the storage device is that's used, that handles fiber channel. Right. Right. Well, you actually would run from the server or the host to the to a fiber channel switch, and then the switch would go from. And then there would be another connection from the switch to the actual SAN. I mean, that's a very traditional. I mean, that's the only way to do it. Right. Um, the the one thing, though, about iSCSI or any type of SAN, even FC, uh, fiber channel over Ethernet, what we do recommend doing is unless you need to, you know, geographically stretch the SAN, we like to uh, definitely run all that iSCSI stuff on a dedicated network separate from the yeah. uh, normal traffic that the hosts see. Uh, and that's something we 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 almost insist on if you're going to say if you're not going to do it this way then use somebody else yeah don't bother sure. what about is vlanning sufficient for that then uh boy that's a really good question um and that brings through a, a whole nother ball of wax um there's logical separation and there's actually physically different in general we actually even for regular traffic we try to stay away from vlans um if we can and sometimes you just can't 
Um, I mean, the, I mean, I see where you're coming from. The main reason for doing a VLAN is to segment out the traffic, but VLANs can still re- be relatively easily cracked with a flood, a packet flood, where right. if you flood the switch with a ton of traffic, the switch kind of gives up and basically turns your your switch into a gigantic hub, so it starts broadcasting things. Not to say that that would, you know, you'd have to, it'd have to be a an, uh, a conscious effort to do that. But I think a lot of people do VLANs and they they have a, a, a um, false sense of security that it's secure. And we're, we argue that if you can do it and you're that paranoid about uh, uh, security, then put it on a spend the extra you know a couple hundred bucks and put it on a physically separate switch on a physically separate network. That's the if you're gonna if you want that network segmentation, then do it that way if it's possible. Now in some cases it's not possible because. You might have shared fiber links or something like that, but yeah. uh, in general, we try to stay away from VLANs. But the point being, if you don't need to be routable for that traffic, don't bother. Like it just seems like a headache. The the, uh, the main reason I even see iSCSI plugged into switches is because they want they they're doing it for redundancy for failover purposes. That there's right. one port coming out of the machine and it can go to one or more storage devices and swap between them kind of seamlessly, but. If you can, if you don't need to do that, don't stay out of the whole thing. Just wire it directly. Yeah, and keep it on a physically separate network on a dedicated switch. Uh, the other thing that can you can do is, you know, and this would be more by accident if you were VLAN off. Somebody's going to come into the switch and uh, at three o'clock in the morning because they're really tired and they're going to make a boo boo on the VLAN and, and blow up your entire <laughs> stored sus- subsystem. Not that that's ever happened to me, but uh, I've heard of it. <laughs> but it is a risk. It is definitely a risk. Have you have you got the sense that direct attached storage has sort of fallen out of favor? Um, you know, again, it, it really depends on the price point. And I had talked to a couple of hardware vendors about this, and I said, you know, you guys need to come up with like a low cost, whether it's iSCSI, fiber channel of Ethernet, or I don't think it can be fiber channel because it's still going to be too expensive. But, you know, price point where people can get into the storage area network or SAN stuff, at a decent price point, you know, even with even with iSCSI, I mean, there's some vendors out there. Oh, we have an iSCSI sandbox for ten grand, but by the time you end up putting everything together and configuring it and getting the tow cards, you're still at like, you know, probably twenty grand, you know, for something decent uh, with with a, with a couple maybe a terabyte of storage. A lot less than it used to be, but still quite a chunk of change. Yeah. So. I think, um, you know, direct attached storage advantages of it are, is you know, it's relatively cheap compared to a SAN. Uh, and the performance is pretty good. You'll get actually with the SAS drives, you'll get better performance on direct attached storage than you would on iSCSI uh, in general, just because the transport is nothing else in need of transport is faster. The uh, iSCSI SAN typically runs it, if you, assuming you're running gig Ethernet, it runs at one gigabit per second. And yeah. with, um, with the uh, SAS stuff, you're looking at three theoretically, although the drives can never keep up with that yet. So for those who are confused, can we define out the difference between SCSI, SATA, and SAS? Yeah. Um, well, SCSI and the the old parallel SCSI, which would be kind of the Ultra 320, Ultra 160, fast SCSI, blah, blah, blah. Um, that is, that's uh, legacy stuff now. And, uh, Basically, what it is is uh, well, Ultra 320 runs at 320 megabits per second, um, and it uh, it's a shared bus. So, and you can have let's see, with the Ultra 320, I believe you can have 14 drives. 
right. um, on the SCSI bus, and every driver is, is assigned a unique ID. But the the disadvantage of, of Ultra 320 SCSI is that all of the traffic that goes along the bus is seen by all every device on that bus. Right. Yeah. So you can kind of think of it kind of like a hub. So, you know, like a hub, you know, an Ethernet hub, when you broadcast traffic to the hub, everybody sees the traffic. Sure. It's just a, kind of essentially like a gigantic repeater. So that stuff is the disadvantage of that is especially when it comes to things like rebuilding a failed RAID, array, RAID drive and a RAID 5 array um, because it has to share the bus. You can't have you can't have simultaneous uh, reads and writes because everybody has to wait for the bus to clear before they can send their information. Yep. yep. Uh, and then contrast that with SATA or SAS, and both of them basically use the same signaling technology. It's just um, SATA is a serial attached, uh, uh, SAS is serial attached SCSI, and uh, SATA is a serial ATA. Um, typically, SATA drives are used for workstations, although you can use them in servers, and SAS drives, uh, which are about roughly about 60% faster, are typically used for servers. Now, SAS and SATA, the biggest advantage there is that every device um, that's connected to the host adapter is on a separate channel, so it's more like a switch. Uh, and the advantage of that, of course, is that you you can transmit data simultaneously across drives to the host adapter. So it's as if every SCSI drive was on its own channel entirely. They're totally isolated from each other. Exactly. So where you really see things, advantages of that, again, like in the scenario of a RAID 5 array where you had one drive that failed, um, you would be able, you would see rebuild times significantly faster than you would with uh, Ultra 320. So that that brings up an interesting topic. Let's let's do a raid for dummies for a few minutes, if you don't mind. I I know that in working with a lot of different IT organizations, there's misconceptions, misunderstandings, and a lot of um, assumptions that are made about different raid configurations. And I mean, it can make a really big difference from uh, availability, from performance, from a data recovery integrity standpoint. What RAID configuration you use on a system? Would you would you mind just taking a couple minutes and explaining what the different ones are, and and what each one gives you? Sure. There's actually quite a few different RAID levels. Um, I'll just kind of go through the most common ones. Sure. So the, the very basic level there's RAID zero, which is basically no fault tolerance. It's typically what you would see on a workstation or something like a JBOD, which is short for uh, just a bunch of disks. And the information is striped across all drives. So if you had a RAID 0, 3-drive RAID array, let's keep it simple, and you had a, a 10 gig drives, then you would have a total usable space of 30 gig. Um, uh, so you would you would see one logical disk that looked like a 30 gig drive, although it would be striped across three 10 gig drives. Right. There's no fault tolerance. The advantage of that is that it's pretty fast because you have three drives uh, working for you. Um, but the disadvantage is that if you lose any drive in that array, the whole entire enchilada would crash on you. Right, right. And you would be very sad. So uh, it's not very good for servers. We don't recommend it, although sometimes we see it. And if we do, it's a red flag. We're like, uh, you need to kind of not do that because if you have one drive failure, you're, you're going to lose your server. Sure. So that's RAID 0. Uh, RAID 1 is, uh, there's, well, and now it's a little, it's changed a little bit with, um, with SAS and SATA drives, but RAID 1 is uh, also referred to as drive mirroring 
or drive duplexing. Uh, there used to be a distinction between mirroring and duplexing. Mirroring was if you use the drives on the same channel, and then duplexing was, is, was if you use the drives on two separate channels. Uh, today, it doesn't really make that much difference because if you're using SAS or SATA, they're always on dedicated channels, therefore they're right. theoretically already duplexed. It made more of a difference when you're on Ultra 320. But basically what that is is you, uh, you have two drives that essentially mirror the same information. So taking the example of the 10-gig drives, if you had two 10-gig drives, you'd have 10 gigs of usable space. And um, if one of the drives failed, uh, you could still continue to work on the remaining drive. So that's, that's, RAID, uh, that's RAID 1. The best use that we use for RAID 1 drives, it's very, very good for sequentially written data. So typically that's going to be one of two things, exchange uh, logs or SQL logs. Right. We yeah. like to, and actually we also use it for uh, loads of OSs uh, for uh, uh, SAN, for uh, uh, clustering hosts. So a lot of times sure. we'll load the OS from a RAID 1 array. Typically we try to avoid booting from the SAN uh, and we like to load locally. It's a little bit more work to do that, but the, the the advantage of that is that if you made a boo-boo on the boot partition on your SAN, you would take down everything simultaneously. Yeah. Rather than, you know, just if you made a boo-boo on one host, you would just mess up that one host, but you could still boot the remaining host. And and plus, it's fewer mover parts, too, right? Like the, I just get scared. As soon as you're booting a machine from something external to the machine, you're you're further and further away from recovery. It seems like there's a lot of moving parts to get a machine recovered. And I agree with you 100%. You know, when you're spending this much money for a SAN infrastructure and high availability, you don't want to, this is one of those, you can't get a little pregnant argument. Yeah. So we, again, it's a little bit more work up front, but kind of our philosophy is we'd rather do more work up front to make our lives easier on the back end rather than the other way around. Because whenever we stray from that, we always, it always ends up, turns around and bites us on the butt. It, it just never fails. I don't know. I think Murphy, Murphy's listening and, realizes, oh, he tried to cut corners here, so uh, guess what? I'm just going to nail you. You're going to get barbecued on the back end. So we try to avoid that as much as we can. Uh, RAID 10? Uh, actually, RAID 5 is is the next thing. Okay. Uh, the most common. RAID 5, we do a lot of RAID 5, and, and also there's another thing called RAID 6. Essentially what that is is you need at least three drives and um, in the array, and you have the overhead of N-1. So... Every drive has uh, data and it has parity information that can u- be used to rebuild uh, parity information on each drive that can be used to build information if one of the drives fails. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the advantage of that is you don't have the, the overhead quite so much of, um, of RAID 1 or even RAID 10. Uh, the disadvantage is that you can only use, lose one drive in the array uh, before everything blows up. So that example there, if you had three 10-gig drives, you would have 20 gigs of usable space, for example. Mm-hmm. And you could lose one drive in the array, but if you lost more than one drive, uh, then the server would crash. Uh, RAID 6 is a kind of a different spin on RAID 5, where you basically have two sets of parity uh, instead of one set of parity on the drives, which allows you to lose two drives in the RAID array and still keep running. Uh, we... We typically don't use RAID 6 too much, and the main reason why is that you have the overhead of writing two sets of parity each drive, so it's not quite as fast as RAID 5. If the client is 
you know, concerned about that, what we typically would do is we would set up RAID 5 with one hot spare. So you have the fault tolerance of RAID 6, but you don't have the overhead of um, double parity. writing two sets of parity. Uh, the, the disadvantage of that, though, is that you actually have to, if the drive fails, then you have to re- rebuild the information on the on this hot spare. But um, it's not quite as bad as it used to be with Ultra 320 with the new SAS and, and SATA drives because the rebuild process works happen, happen so much faster. Right, but right. I think it's, oh, there's another angle on this, which is also that when you're rebuilding in a SaaS infrastructure, it's the the existing uh, drives still function well. Where I found once you were in a rebuild process on a SCSI rig, yeah, the, really your slow. whole system was degraded. Like it, you were just because most of the bandwidth was consumed in the rebuild. Exactly, and the main reason for that is is the shared bus right. as opposed to the dedicated bus. Yeah, yeah, on a rebuild with the Ultra 320 on a RAID 5 array, you're going to hear about it, trust me. Oh, yeah, everybody um, knows. Everybody knows, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everybody knows the Emperor doesn't have any clothes on. Uh, with um, with uh, SAS on a rebuild, they might notice. And go, you know, it seems like things are running a little slow. Maybe it's just my imagination. Right. As opposed to getting, you know, phone calls off the hook. So, yeah, it's abundantly uh, clear. The, yeah. So the last thing is, is the most, the last common one that we would use is RAID 10. And that really is kind of like the Ferrari of RAID arrays. Basically what it is, is it's, it's called RAID 10 or RAID 1.0 because you have striped drives across one channel, but then they're duplexed across each other. So if I have a client that comes to me and says, Hey, Alan, I want you to build the fastest, gnarliest, most fall tolerant, uh, most expensive, Drive, drive array, I'm going to say it's RAID 10. Right. And, um, and, the, and the advantage of that, of course, is that you have, uh, the disadvantage is you have 50% overhead. So if you had, let's say, six drives in a RAID uh, 10 array uh, that were 10 gig apiece, you would only get half of that stored. So you'd only have 30 gig drives, but you could right. lose three drives uh, in the array and still keep running. But doesn't it have so to very, be the right fast. three? has to be the right three. Yeah. <laughs> so it has to be one of the channels or two channel, two drives on. Uh, well, actually, you know, it it depends. Hopefully, I've, I haven't had, I'm not, I haven't, knock on wood, I haven't had more than, uh, I haven't had more than one drive go out simultaneously on a RAID 10 array. So uh, I guess it's something I could test one of these days, but uh Probably want to have some time, but it, but isn't there a point that yeah. the these drive? I mean, drives are very reliable now. As long as you have some kind of redundancy, you're going to survive. Yes, yes. Um, one of the things I should point out is that we do see some people that use SATA drives for servers, which is fine. It doesn't have the performance of SAS. I mean, we always try to go SAS when we can, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the the thing about SATA drives, you have to be careful if if you use them in a server is you have to look at the duty cycle and, and, and that and the duty cycle in relation to the mean time before failure or the NTBF because um, a lot of times the SATA drives are rated at a, maybe a 50% duty cycle because they're designed to be in a workstation. The duty cycle is, you know, how mu- uh, of the total running time, how much time is actually being, the drive is actually being used. So yeah, they're saying yeah. in a workstation it might be used 50% of the time. On a server... The duty cycles are often a lot higher, so you know duty cycle uh, on a server might be 90%. In other words, the drive is going to be used 90% of the time and sit idle 10% of the time. So we've seen some scenarios where 
people will put in SATA drives into a server and look at the mean time to failure is five years, and they think they're good, but the duty cycle is only 50%. So then after maybe a year and a half, two years, the drives start failing, you know, and drop, start dropping like flies, and they wonder what the heck's going on. And that's usually where, so if you do get, bottom line there is that if you do get, if you do use SATA drives for um, servers, make sure that you look at the duty cycle and the mean time to failure. That's something that uh, a lot of people overlook and then they wonder why their, their SATA drives keep going out. But in general, we try to even stay away from SATA drives for servers and we like to go SAS just because. Any thoughts on uh, on SSDs for the enterprise yet? Ah, that is a really good question. Um, have you seen that Samsung video? <laughs> I have seen the Samsung's video with the 24 drives. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And I've looked at this. I've, I've been reading the stats on the uh, on Intel's X25. I mean, I think the big concern that most people have around the SSDs these days, at least at the enterprise level, is that they just don't have the lifespan. Exactly. How many reads and writes, Jim? Yeah, they don't have a lifespan. Um and they're still expensive, uh, but they do have lower power consumption. So, and they're all they're a lot more shockproof than the traditional, you know, mechanical drives. So, the, I think the biggest advantage of those is uh, is right where they are, which is in laptops. Right. Um, you know, in a year from now, I might be singing a different story, saying, you know, look, they look like they're they're a lot more reliable than they used to be, and they've come down in price. The other thing that we're seeing with the solid state drives is that um, the density isn't quite there yet in terms of, you know, the, the maximum size of the solid-state drive you can get even today is not where it needs to be for server storage. Especially at that price point. I mean, there are 256-gig drives out there, but boy, oh, boy, are they costly. Yeah, they're pricey. Yeah, well, yeah. They're, you know, what, a million dollars a piece? Something like yeah. That. <laughs> so, but, but, you know, I might be singing a different tune a year from now, and that would kind of be cool. If uh, they come down in price and they do tr- do prove to be reliable, yeah, I think that's the big whammy for me. Is is this? Am I really going to get two or three years out of this before it fails? Right, and, and you don't want to be the guy that sticks out their neck to go, "Hey, I think we should go solid state and have it blow up and then have egg on your face. Oh yeah, well, that's the IT mantra, right? Change is good. You go first. Yeah, that's right. Go ahead, you know, take a jump off the cliff. Let me know how the landing was and. Uh, just get back to me on that. Yeah, we'll get back to me. We'll talk. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk. Hopefully, if you can still talk. <laughs> so, so, or as Mark uh, Manassi likes to say, that might be an uh, an R R G E a resume or yeah, an R G an R G E a resume generating event. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, when it comes to Sans, I, I just find that folks, it's almost like they they read the brochure and they just believe. Because I've certainly found in, in my tests and working with companies that are struggling that SAN's main feature is not performance, it's reliability, and folks forget that. Yes. So you would, in some scenarios, like especially with iSCSI SANs, you'll actually see direct attached storage outperform iSCSI. Sure. Especially so, Ring 10s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Um, really, the, the main reason for uh, a storage area network or SAN is for high availability. So it's typically would be would be combined with some type of cluster solution, you know, Microsoft clustering or uh, a VMware cluster, something like that. So the real advantage of the SAN is you could basically with direct attached storage, only the physical server that it's connected to can see the storage. With the SAN advantage is that more two or more nodes can actually see the storage, so it's basically shared storage. 
But to make that happen, you have some significant overhead to do that. Uh, and that's why, you know, a SAN is, you know, an, a fiber channel SAN all in. You're probably, even a low end one today, you're still looking at about, uh, <sighs> probably about 30, maybe minimum $30,000 to 50 uh, right. to do something halfway decent. Uh, you know, not to say that I'm sure there's going to be a SAN vendor that comes up, oh, we can do, you know, fiber channel for 10 grand, but, you know, sure. it's like. Well, I, I can remember spending hundreds of thousands of dollars for, you know, uh, what was it? A, a couple terabytes of storage, like um, you know, nine years ago or eight years ago. It's a it's a different story now. Yeah, it's a different story. The um, and the other reason why I I think there needs and it's coming, but still relatively slow and a a decent, reliable, you know, good entry SAN is uh, for virtualization. Because uh, you know when you get a, a a host that's running, you know, five or six or ten virtual servers on it. If that goes down, mm-hmm. it's a big deal. It's like losing sure. ten servers all at once. So that's where the high availability would come in for a storage area network. Is uh, when you have that scenario, um, you could fail over to uh, some waiting hardware so that you won't actually go down. But then you need a SAN to do that. Unfortunately, yeah, with a SAN, I guess you get a lot of you know you can do ge- geographic distribution and redundancy of a SAN and uh, the whole concept of being able to you know sync and split to do backups and take all your data offline and get a real snapshot and do that kind of thing is all stuff that's at least I, th- I think it's fairly unique to a SAN or but those are all those extra overhead that goes along with those capabilities to to give you that advantage. Yeah, yeah, and you also have the overhead of um, even learning the SAN the SAN. Uh, Operating because the SAN itself sure. has a typically has a built-in operating system. The the SAN interfaces are getting a lot easier than they used to be. I mean, when the first stuff came out, it was so cryptic and complex. We just let the uh, the SAN vendor set up and burn the LUNs and stuff like right. that. Right. Uh, but uh, now you could almost you know you could almost figure it out yourself. You might need a little bit of help, but at least you have a chance of doing it. Whereas before, it's like, okay, I know enough enough not to butts with this, so I'm just going to let the SAN vendor set it up for me. But I also sure. get the sense that, that people abuse SANs. Once they get one, they believe this is the great master storage, and they connect too many servers to it, and then they complain about performance problems, because in the end, there's so much uh, competition for spindles. And in some ways, SAN vendors love that, because the answer is, buy more. Yeah. 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 Like, oh, we can fix rack. this. It'll just be, you know, a million dollars to fix it. Yeah, this is uh, easily for solved. For your quest in SAN world domination or whatever it is. But, uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, which is which brings part another point is, you know, it's very critical when you're setting up your SAN how the LUNs are burned uh, or how the LUNs are configured, because... Uh, Typically, one LUN will logically correspond to uh, a, a, an array on the on the SAN. Uh, what we typically see is we'll set up it de- again. It depends on the SAN, but we'll set up like some high performance LUNs and then some some uh, medium performance LUNs and maybe even some lower kind of near line storage LUNs, uh, depending on what the client's doing. And the high performance stuff would be set up with either RAID one or RAID ten using SAS drives. The uh, medium performance uh, LUNs would be, you know, RAID 5, RAID 6, or RAID 5 with a hot uh, spare using SAS. And then the low-end stuff would probably be RAID 5 with SATA. Uh, so, and typically a lot a lot of uh, vendors allow you to mix and match uh, drive SATA versus SAS on the same right, right. SAN now, which is kind of nice. Uh, but that kind of helps. And then you can kind of plan, okay, well, 
because you don't need, you know, Ferrari performance typically for every single thing you do, but you're probably going to need it for your SQL server, or your SharePoint server, probably, probably Exchange, maybe, you know, a really high loaded file server, but, you know, for like mail archiving, that would probably be low performance. If you have a bunch of pictures that need to be archived, that could be put on the the uh, SATA uh, lower performance uh, LUNs. So it really does require quite a bit of planning. And then if you're going to be rolling out a uh, Microsoft cluster, there's certain LUNs that have to be burned for um, the quorum drive and things like that uh, that you need to plan for uh, when when the when the the SAN is going in. Yeah, and I do get a sense that people don't often, like you said, it's fifty thousand dollars just to get started with a SAN, and really, I think it's more than that because if you don't have at least two heads and a couple of racks of drives for each head, you, you're fooling yourself in terms of SAN performance. Uh, yeah, I think people jump yeah. away from direct attached storage too quickly, or 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 simpler iSCSI solutions. Yes, yes, I, I agree. I mean, usually when we get a shelf for a SAN, we'll fill it up with drives, and the clients well, why do we need to fill it up? It's like Again, one of those things you can't get a little pregnant. Um, right. You really kind of need to fill up the shelf because then it affects how you burn your lens. And if you only fill it up halfway, then you end up having two lens that are not big enough to really do anything that you needed to do, blah, blah, blah. So then right. you end up pulling the lens, rebuilding it, restoring the data. And now it costs you, you know, an extra couple of days of work to do it the right way. So whenever we we get a shelf on a a shelf would be a logical you know chassis which typically holds fourteen drives or fifteen drives, we usually fill up the entire enchilada with drives just and just are just done with it. And we kind found that although it, there. It, it's a little more expensive up front, we never regret doing it on the back end. Right. We don't. Yeah. We never. Well, you're that you're buying a sand for flexibility of storage and be able to create things on the fly. So you know. Shortchanging yourself for a few bucks for a couple of extra drives is could be a pretty unfortunate way to yeah, do it. Yeah, and again, it's that you can't get a little pregnant argument there. It's, it doesn't make right. sense not to fill up the shelf with all the drives just because you're going to regret it. Um, of course, the other the other <clears throat> cost, the other head cost, if you will, to to San is having you know one or more people around that that know, as you mentioned before, how to do all that work, um, how to how to make it how to make it shine, how to make it scream, and even just how to configure it, you know, depending on the, on the, uh, on the vendor of the SAN. So there, there's overhead associated on the people side as well. Yeah. And, and then, you know, backup, uh, whenever, and then it's not, it's not just the SAN itself. It's all the stuff supported around it. So yeah, for backup, typically, um, people snap the, the SAN to JBOD, you know, right. for, for backup. And then from JBOD, they'll spin it to tape. So you have yep. the overhead of getting a purchasing a JBOD for your SAN, and then some SAN vendors charge extra to snap the SAN, and that software is very expensive. Yeah, been. And been then there. anytime you go with, whenever you mention SAN with any type of storage, you know, add a zero or a couple of zeros because uh, <laughs> yep, exactly. the, uh, the uh, software is more expensive, the hardware is more expensive, the drives are more expensive. It's just more expensive. And you, you can uh, get real benefits just, out of it that can make the investment worthwhile, but it's never. It's never. It's like buying a boat or an airplane, right? You know, it's gonna it's gonna cost you more than that upfront piece, and you need to plan for that. Yeah, it's maybe not quite as bad, but close. <laughs> well, maybe a small boat. <laughs> 
So it's just a small <laughs> ocean, and the hole, and the small hole, uh, hole in the ocean you have to fill up as opposed to a big one. Yeah, right. It's the, but, the, the, the hole yeah. in your data center you have to keep shoveling money into. Yeah, yeah. And one of the one of the things also about just sands and clustering in general that we found is Microsoft clustering uh, with LUNs you can have potential owners. So you you um, with Microsoft clustering you can have uh, you know one or two or more hosts the potential owner of a LUN, but you can only have one host that's active on the LUN at any given time. So in other words, the active host has to release the LUN before the backup host can take over the LUN. Um, on VMware clustering, it's a little bit different. Uh, you can have two or more hosts, and it really this is really the way the file system is written. Um, you can have two or more hosts have simultaneous access to the LUN. They can't have simultaneous access to a file on the LUN, but they can have simultaneous access to files on the uh, They can have simultaneous access to the LUN. Where that really comes into play is um, if you're using uh, clustering for uh, in virtualization, even with Hyper-V. That's why in Microsoft they have the, I don't know if you, I'm sure you're familiar with the quick migration with Hyper-V, yeah. where you actually, you can move a, one machine over from, one host to another host, but mm-hmm. you actually have to shut down the host and then bring it back up on the new host. Mm-hmm. You have to shut down the virtual server guest and then and then bring it up on the new on the new host. And the reason why that is is because you have to actually do a failover on the LUN in order to get that to work. Ah. So if you're using a, um, Hyper-V in a virtualization environment with with clustering, the other issue there too is that you have to uh, fail over all of the contents of the LUN when you do a failover scenario. So the disadvantage of that is that if you had five machines on a single LUN, you have to fail over all five virtual guests to a different host simultaneously. I call it the entire enchilada failover. So uh, because with clustering, with Microsoft clustering, you can't have simultaneous uh, access to the LUN for more, from one the, more than one host. In contrast that with VMware, uh, it's a little bit more flexible because since you, you can have simultaneous access to the LUN, you can do a granular failover. So you can have, if you have one host go down and it was running 10 guests, you could have five, five of those guests fail over to one host and five fail over to another host. And that's why, that's what makes the technology like vMotion on, uh, which basically is a hot migration of uh, a virtual server from one host to another in real time. And what allows that to happen is the way they wrote their file system, which allows simultaneous access to the LUN. So it's a it's a subtle but important difference in feature set. And supposedly Microsoft is coming out with um, it's going to be the next release of Hyper-V is going to include hot migration. But I can see why they didn't do it with this release is because um, the way if you look at the way the clustering works, um, you can't have simultaneous access to the LUN. And the first time we set up a Microsoft cluster. I thought I had actually not set it up correct until I really took a look and said, oh, I see. You can have possible owners, but you can only have an active owner at any given time. Right. Very well, cool. Alan, I think we've about run out of time. Any final words, call-outs? Hi, moms? Um, Hi, mom. No, not too much. I'm uh, actually going to be speaking at Wind Connections uh, coming up this week in Orlando, Florida. So if anybody gets a chance to go out there and they hear their show, come up and certainly say hi. Yeah, you bet. And uh, also have a uh, also have an article coming out in Windows IT Pro on uh, 
exchange recovery soup to nuts. So that'll be out probably in another couple of months, hopefully here. I'm just finishing it up now. Awesome. But I uh, appreciate you guys having me on the show, and hopefully the listeners have got some. Now they're thoroughly confused about storage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Better educated. I hope we've properly worried you about your storage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thanks for dropping by. Yeah, thanks for co- coming on the show, Alan. We'll talk to you again. Okay, great. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. Mm-hmm.